Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show, The Big Show, the most critically claimed, I don't even remember, it's been so long since we did this, I don't even Podcast remember. Podcast recorded in our car. Car. And today we are in the Hemi studio. That's right, the Hemi-powered studio, because if you're going to have a Chrysler product, you need to have a Hemi in it, because there's just no other way. The hemispherical headed engine is the best engine on the planet, at least if you're talking about a Mopar engine. Although we did change this, we just recently changed the spark plugs, and goodness gracious, Georgia Brown, that's a lot of spark plugs in this car. Each one of these cylinders has two spark plugs, it's a V8, so that's just a lot of, that's a lot of engine or um, spark plug re- replacement. There we go. Anywho, welcome to the show, the big show. We got a important show for you today, and we're going to put. Unlike a lot of the shows, which may or you know may sit around in the can for a while, we've got oh, I don't know how many sitting around in the can right now. We're going to push this one right on through because it's kind of time relevant. We're going to do a podcast version of some of the information Spice has been sharing about our new friend of the coronavirus. Woohoo! Woohoo! And uh, one of the things I wanted to say about this before we started out on any of the scientific stuff, which I'll just basically shut my pie hole. And yes, I I do have a pie hole. And my pie hole prefers pumpkin and apple if you want to be, you know, and always chocolate, chocolate cream, of course. And I do like the occasional mint pie and a good lemon meringue if the meringue is well done. (laughs) Well, what else? That gets me pretty close, doesn't it? That's most of my... Yeah, coconut cream. Oh, banana banana pie. Banana cream. Yeah, that too. Okay, coconut cream, yeah. So I pretty much eat most kinds of pie. I'll, I'll eat cherry pie. I'll eat... Uh, I don't really care for... Uh, what's the, the pecans? Yeah. I just find it too rich. I mean, it's not like... I like a bite of pecan pie. I don't like the whole pecan pie. I feel like I, I've ate the Queen Mary. You know, I've ate the Titanic. You have. Anyway, what I wanted to talk to you, I saw a meme just a bit ago on a social media. And these memes drive me a little nuts. I know a lot of people just do these for jokes. I know a lot of people do these for fun. But, you know, there was a meme talking about how many cases, how many, you know, there's been 200,000 hospitalizations from the flu, comparing this to the, the seasonal flu to the coronavirus. And there's been, you know, 20,000 deaths or whatever it was. I forget exactly. And those just drive me a little bit nuts because it entirely missed the point of, yes, the seasonal flu is bad. And, yes, a lot of people die. But this corona thing is in addition to the people who are already dying from this other, which makes it worse. Because it's like saying, okay... Yeah, 20,000 people die in, a, in an automobile accident. And we got, at the time this is being recorded, there's been about 3,500 reported deaths worldwide. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But there's been about 3,500 reported deaths. And this is like 3,500 people that were, uh, you know, killed by Freddy Krueger, okay? This is in addition to this other really bad death total. So... Keep that in mind when you start hearing people comparing this to the, uh, well, how this compares to the seasonal flu. It it doesn't really matter because this doesn't replace the seasonal flu. This is on top of the seasonal flu. 
One of the reasons for the vigor of the response against coronavirus by the public health people is that they're trying to prevent it from becoming another yearly edition of a coronavirus circulating around and making a, a bunch of people sick. If we can get it basically stamped out before it starts bouncing from one hemisphere to the other season by season, we have a shot at getting rid of it. But if we don't get rid of it, it may be killing people for lots of years. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And it's something for which there is currently no vaccine, currently no treatment to make uh, less serious, and currently no people who have even partial immunity from previous exposures. Right. So it's, it's got some unique challenges. Now, is this, as a, I'm going to talk to uh, Spice, not Spice the wife, not Spice the pickleball player. <laughs> We've been playing pickleball a lot lately. Not Spice the cyclist. I want to talk to Spice, the person who makes her living as a pathophysiologist, okay. teaching physiology in at a major Midwestern university. I'm going to ask you, is this what someone would call a virgin field problem, at least in part? It's a virgin field problem, but it is not the worst iteration I could think of of a virgin field problem. Okay. Now, would you please explain to the good people out there what I'm talking about? Virgin field means that nobody has immunity to it because the population has not been exposed to anything similar enough to train their immune systems to deal with it. For example, when the Westerners came across the ocean and met with the uh, Native Americans, the Native inhabitants of the New World, they had absolutely no background with a lot of diseases that the Eastern Europe or that the Europeans had been dealing with for centuries. And some of them really badly, you know. I mean, smallpox in a European person is bad enough, but to introduce smallpox into a population that had absolutely no immunity whatever to it was just horrific. Yeah, they were getting 90% death rates. And, and that's what a virgin field epidemic was at the time. But this particular virus doesn't have as great a propensity to make people ill. There are people who get it, and about 80% of the cases that we know of are mild. There are some cases we don't know how many that are asymptomatic. So it's about 20% of the people who have fairly serious or critically serious disease with this virus, as far as we can tell. And it transmits better than the flu by a little bit, we think. This is March 7, as I'm saying this, and this changes as new data comes in. We think it transmits a little bit better than the seasonal flu, but not a lot better than the seasonal flu. So it is not a worst-case scenario by any means, it but it's not, also not a nothing. It's not at this point in time in 1918. No. There are a couple things about this virus that I find particularly troublesome aspects of it. And one is the percentage of people we need, uh, of the people we know of who have it. It's true, 80% of diseases are of the disease is mild and needs no treatment. That means 20% is not. And we don't have enough beds in hospitals for 20% of a large segment of the population who's likely to get exposed to this, if we're not careful, to be sick. We don't have that many free hospital beds. 
and, anywhere in the world, including the United States. And we can't afford to lose 20% of our health care providers down with this stuff. Yeah. I mean, if you get if you get this flu in your health care provider, you're done. You can't be treating people like that. You know, no. So you're just done. So you're out for the count. And the people who get r- more than mild cases are basically down for the count for six weeks, whether or not, you know, most of them will survive it. But they're still mostly down for the count for six whole weeks and two weeks with mild disease. And that's relatively a lot. So those are troubling aspects. But it doesn't transmit as badly as would fear, as easily as would feared. So that's a good thing. We have not scripted. We haven't even talked about this show. We just picked up the, put the headphones on or headsets on and didn't even discuss any of it. So I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Sure. Concerns that I have. When I'm, when I'm dealing with this thing, there's two, two concerns that I have. I do not know if they hold water, but I think the first one absolutely holds water. Isn't one of the biggest concerns this 12-day incubation period, which you, or this 12-day period where people can give this flu out or infect other people, and nobody knows they have it? Yeah, because we don't have enough test kits to know who's really carrying it around. And a lot of the people who were carrying it around asymptomatically when they were tested, a lot of them ended up coming down with some version of illness later. Basically, all of them that they looked at did get sick later, usually with a mild version. But they were shedding enough virus to be infective for days before they began to feel the least bit ill. And that is that defeats one of our best modes of stopping transmission of infectious disease is if you feel ill, you don't go out, you don't mix with people, and you go get care, and you go get isolated. That is still helpful, don't get me wrong. But with the coronavirus, there's some time before then, and a small percentage of people who remain asymptomatic, that can and do still spread the disease to other people. And they've got no idea that they're doing it. A lot of them don't even know they were exposed themselves. So they're entirely innocent in intent, but it's still going to transmit disease. And that's why it's starting to pop up some places we never expected to see it. Like that nursing home in Washington where they had, what, six or seven deaths and lots of cases. So that's a, that's a problem. Now, the way to get around that problem is to put out a bunch of test kits but we're having trouble getting out enough test kits, and we're having trouble getting enough to the tests run. And people seem to not show it, and then show it, and then not show it. The mild cases, it seems to pop up and down from infective levels to undetectable levels to infective levels again. It's going to be a sneaky little thing, is the way it's looking at the moment. Another part of the test kit thing, too, is a lot of people just will not cooperate with that sort of thing. They just won't have anything to do with it. Yeah, and that's really why these sorry. That's really why these places are declaring public health emergencies. You may think they're getting really carried away when they de- declare an emergency because one person in the state has died with it. What they're doing is enabling themselves to pass binding rules on people like you will stay quarantined or we will pick you up and lock you in a hospital room for 14 days. Now, this absolutely positively goes against a lot of our uh, views. And we don't do politics here, 
but I don't think it's a big reach to think that most preppers are not real big fans of of the whole concept of here. Let us tell you what you can and cannot do. Yeah. Let us tell you where you can and cannot go. The level of governmental power conferred by the declaring of states of emergency is disturbing to me. It is. It's alarming. But then we have, oh, there was the guy who knew he'd been exposed, and his health department sent him home and asked him to self-isolate. But he was like, nah, I'm going to go to this big gathering of people instead. And he went Medi- to he a medical public field. celebration. Yeah, He was in the medical field. He knew better. Humans have a, a, an astounding ability to believe what they want to believe. So there's that. Yeah. The second question is, I really don't know the answer to this one, but I am a historian. And I am... I would say at least moderately familiar with the 1918 bug. Yeah. And the 1918 bug, there's no question about it. It was much nastier than this guy. Yes. But the 1918 bug, as it originally came out, was not nearly as strong it was As mild. after it mutated. It, the illness was more mild the first year. Right. It was much, it was in the second much year. less. Now, it was still bad. It's still worse than this one ever was, or has been so far, I should say. It's still worse than that. But it, so it started out bad, and then it got evil. <laughs> well, not really evil, because... Yeah, it's, you know, it has it, no it, intent. It, it has yeah. no intent. But uh, my concern is, this thing could do that. This could. thing could do that. But it is not a high probability event. Most germs, as they circulate through the population, they tend to cause less severe illness rather than more. Because the most severely ill people tend to, like, die and not go around passing around the virus. So the versions of it that mutate to, I don't feel good, but I feel good enough to go out and mix with the world, are the ones that spread most widely. So the general pattern is for viruses to get less fatal to the population rather than more as they circulate. But there will be counterexamples. Right. Now, again, the big this is not nearly as bad as the 1918. And the reason this is not real, nearly as bad, obviously it doesn't kill as many people, is because unlike the 1918, at this point in time of the development of this disease, it does not cause the cytokine storm. Yes. Which kills younger stronger people with big, heaping healthy immune systems. Now, could you tell people what I'm talking about? That is when a virus triggers an immune reaction, and the immune reaction goes over the top, gets so potent that the immune reaction itself kills the person with the disease. That is called a cytokine storm. And they haven't been seeing cytokine storms with this. They've been seeing the deaths primarily among the oldest and people with underlying chronic diseases, very few deaths, surprisingly few deaths among the very young. So that's a plus. But on the other hand, we have a whole lot of people in our country, at least, with chronic disease. We have a whole lot of people over the age of 70 that I would miss if they were gone. So I'm not going to just toss off a casual, oh, it's only killing the old and chronically ill, because that's actually about 40% of the people over the age of 50 fall in one of those two categories. 
That's a chunk of people. I'm going to be straight up. One of the most important things for a prepper who doesn't really know very much about medicine, once you get past the first aid stuff, obviously being able to control and stop bleeding, getting CPR, that kind of, once you get past that, okay, is a good basic understanding of anatomy and physiology, just a basic understanding of how things work, because that will help you base your decisions if you need to self-treat or treat other people. And one of the one of the most important, I don't know if it's the most important, one of the most important things that I think a prepper who's interested in being able to gauge and judge health is a good understanding of the immune system, how it works, what you can do to strengthen it, yeah, and understanding how to deal with the fact when it goes wonky and starts way overreacting. Because a lot of the real problems that we have when we're, when we're sick or when we got an infection come as kind of bonus gifts from our immune system. Yeah, a lot of those are uh, all allergies. All autoimmune disorders are in that category. It's the immune, immune uh, system reacting to what it perceives as bad stuff. A lot of the rashes and other reactions to environmental irritants like poison ivy and things like that, those are all immune system based. Right. For example, you know, you get a mosquito bite, right? And you have the the welling the, the swelling pops up and the itchy comes in and you take your hydrocortisone cream and you and you put it on the mosquito bite and hopefully you get some relief for it. Well, the bite itself is not what's causing the itching and the swelling. It's the immune system reaction to the bite. So hydrocortisone is actually just toning down the immune system Yeah, it's reaction. an immune suppressant. Well, see, that's what I'm saying. A lot of people yeah. don't understand this. Also, most of the symptoms of, of colds and flus and things like that are generated by the immune system. So, In uh, the right dose, they're helpful. But the immune system is not known for its sense of restraint. No. It will help you right into misery. And sometimes into death. It doesn't care if you're miserable. It only cares that it's killing or trying to kill what it thinks is a bad thing. And, of course, we're saying it thinks. It doesn't think. But it... it, it that's how it's designed. That's how it works. That's, how it's, you know, that's what it does. And a good understanding of the immune system is a really good way to to start in learning how to deal with a lot of the stuff that the preppers have to deal with. Like, uh, you know, the immune, you people that are allergic to peanuts and they get the swelling, the anaphylactic shock, that's all immune system. And also, on the flip side of the coin is, don't. this doesn't mean you don't want a strong immune system. You want a strong immune system. And there are things that you can do to... Strengthen your own immune system. And I'm not talking about taking a bunch of drugs or those little pills that, you know, come in the $20 bottles. I'm not saying they don't work. I'm just saying that's not what I'm talking about. What you want is a strong and well-tuned immune system. And there's a lot of lifestyle things 
that promote that. And that's one of the reasons that both Salty and I are get our exercise even when we don't feel like it and eat decent even when we would prefer not to because it improves underlying some of us us do (laughs) some of us are are a little more heathen on that i'm more interested in being well than i am in eating what i want to eat on at a particular moment most of the time so most of the time the long-term goals win but sometimes not (laughs) because chocolate's good uh But anyway, there are especially exercise, sufficient sleep, and uh, a decent diet do a whole lot to make you able to defend against threats like this without having your immune system get overboard. Allergies are actually lessened by regular exercise. They are. I will tell you that. But defense against real germs is, too. Before I started getting exercise on a regular basis, I used to be down for the summer. From hay fever. I mean, it'd kill me all summer. Now I still I get killed for two weeks when the um, creeping red fescue comes to head. I'm still slaughtered for those two weeks, and I don't think I'll ever get past that. But other than that, it's not that bad. And you get a lot less infections. Yes. And you get over them quicker when you do. So there's a lot of things one can do for coronavirus or any other infection. And by the way, when we're talking about exercise, we're not talking about spending four hours a day on the treadmill. Go, no. no. Yeah. 30 minutes to an hour, five days a week, it makes, it makes a huge difference. Enormous and, difference. Yeah, I mean, you know, that doesn't sound, that's not what the exercise people think you should get, but they want you on the treadmill four hours a day, seven days a week, the, and then to go lift. And then when you're done with that, you know, go ahead and, and eat your. 17 calories worth of <laughs> worth of bran, and then they want you to go back to the gym. And That's just the bodybuilding people. The people who are interested in your real health don't want that. They know that the biggest jump comes from doing very little to doing 30 minutes, five days a week. That is the single biggest improvement in health you can make with exercise. More exercise above that, yeah, it does improve it, but the rate of improvement slows down, to be honest. And I got to be honest with you. I'm not. I'm not going to badmouth any particular exercise routines or exercise schemes or anything like that. But I have to admit, there's there's one or two programs out there um, that I look at, and I just think, wow, is the goal of this to absolutely destroy every joint in your body? Is that the is that the goal of this? This uh, some sort of fit training is to, yeah, you'll get tone and everything like that, but you won't have any knees or hips or or uh, shoulders left when you're 40. But, you know, you, you'll look really good in your 30s. Anyway, I just happened to have a friend who blew out both of his knees doing that stuff last week. Both Deep squats with heavy time. weights is not a good idea. No. Yeah, it makes your legs look great until like, your knees explode. And now he's done. So anyway, pressing right along. Here's the point. Your good health is going to protect you. This coronavirus has some aspects that make it particularly troublesome. And one is that we are faced with a choice of shutting down a lot of human contacts to slow the progression of the disease. Because it's going to get around, probably. 
but if we slow it down, we might not outrun, say, our hospital capacity. And we might be able to develop vaccines and stuff before we kill off whole bunches of people with it. So we're working right now to slow it down. We might be faced with the choice of shutting down a lot of human contacts to slow the disease for those reasons and trashing the economy because there's also serious economic impacts here. And that actually, that is one of the things that most convinces me. There's a lot of conflicting information about how serious coronavirus is. The Chinese government shut down their most productive manufacturing center for six weeks. I don't think they did it out of a superabundance of caution. I don't think they did it because they care deeply about their individual workers. The only reason I can see them doing it is because they thought it was the best way to protect their bottom line overall, because that's the way they roll. Yeah, to me, the and, most the most telling map that I or the most telling thing I have seen is this whole uh, coronavirus adventure so far has been the map of Wuhan, the pollution map. Watching the difference between uh, February first. 2019 and February 1st, 2020, just look at the pollution. I mean, the pollution coming out of Wuhan area is just astronomical in 2019. And it's clear blue skies in 2020. Why? Because none of the factories are open. Yeah. You know, that tells me more than anything else. And I don't think they did that for any reason other than they thought they absolutely had to do that to prevent worse tragedies. They are the ones who really know what's going on in China. We don't. I'm convinced they're lying to us. They always uh, do. They always do. <laughs> so, you know, that's not being all that political. That's just being factual. It's what they do. How can you tell so, when the, the communist Chinese government lies? Their lips move. Their lips move. <laughs> or their pen moves. Or their keyboard moves. Yeah. So anyway, we're, we're, we're going to have Spice's birthday Birthday lunch today. Woohoo! So we're going to eat something healthy. Because it's really delicious. <laughs> that too. So we'll talk to you later. Bye.